Our Father, we're, we're so thankful this morning uh, that your son came forth at your will and uh, sacrificed himself entirely for our sakes, gave himself over to your will, Father, in every detail of that. And what was required was far beyond our ability to comprehend. And yet you continue to reveal the weight, weightiness of that, the majesty of that, and the success, the consequence of that to our hearts as we open your word. So, Father, I just thank you that our, our Lord Jesus was so willing and uh, that he is a true example to all of us as we live in this life, filled with many challenges. Father, I, I thank you that uh, you blessed us this particular day and gathered us here this morning. I pray, Father, that, that you would enable us to understand your word of truth here in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Father, we're mindful of many who do not know you and whose minds and hearts have not been opened to your truth. In fact, they're hard, so hard, that uh, they cannot hear a word, it seems, uh, of truth. But, Father, uh, though many in our land are in that situation, and uh, darkness certainly is found in many places, Father, I do pray for those that know you that they'd be bold and that there would be still time before you close this dispensation once and for all, still time for many to be saved. And I pray, Father, that if it's in your will, and it would be great from our point of view, but if it's in your will, Father, that you would draw our nation still to yourself in these dark days. Pray for our president and those that serve with him and all those in government in whatever level, federal, state, local, wherever they may serve, Father. And we pray for them that you would uh, guide and lead them, whether they are aware of what you are doing or not, Father, whether they're believers or not, Father, I pray that you would continue to use this nation as a light, as a beacon, and as a source for the propagation of your truth around the world. And for that, Father, of course, we need many here who are willing to serve. So please guide and direct uh, our nation, its leaders, and uh, we live in perilous times, and there are many enemies. So, Father, I pray that uh, those that willingly serve you would be encouraged and strengthened and protected and fruitful in their work. Father, bless us now as we open your word, and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if we were preaching today and not teaching... We wouldn't be able to do what we're going to If we were preaching, we might be uh, very encouraging to you, uh, but you might not comprehend much of what's found in Paul's letter to the Philippians. What I'd like to do today is to give an overview, give an introduction, uh, rather than just jumping in uh, verse by verse, and we will do that beginning next week, Lord willing. Uh, today, I'd like us to look at the whole letter. I'd like us to look at it not in such detail, but 
Nevertheless, I'd like us to see clearly what the major themes are that Paul writes of there. And to see what the purpose of the letter is in God's mind, in God's view. Uh, <clears throat> certainly, Paul's life was a life uh, of much, um, <laughs> what, much intensity, let us say. In fact, if you read of it in the book of Acts, or if you read of Paul's life as expressed in his letters, you see much about uh, how quickly things moved in Paul's life. Uh, that slowed down considerably when he was taken into bondage uh, by the Jews and the Romans, right? And eventually carried off to Rome and then imprisoned there more than one time, by the way. Um, we won't look into the details of that now. But the occasion of the letter to the Philippians was Paul's imprisonment. And there were a couple of different aspects of that that Paul highlights here. But in history, <clears throat> the occasion of the letter was that a man had arrived in Rome where Paul was imprisoned, and he had been sent from the church in Philippi to Rome for a couple of purposes. Uh, one of them, though, a very significant one, was to communicate to Paul that there were issues in the church. And uh, they felt, uh, apparently they felt, because we don't, we don't have the, the letter that uh, a man named Epaphroditus carried with him, but, but apparently what that letter described was a very significant failure in Philippi to live according to the fullness of God's grace. They'd been taught much about this. They'd been given doctrinal teaching when Paul was there about what had been accomplished through the finished work of Christ and what a difference it made, practically speaking. But the believers there, though they got a, got a very good start in grace, they had then fallen astray in some to some degree, and it may seem like us kind of trivial because there were two particular women, I won't mention them again later, but uh, they were in conflict, and it had become such a critical issue that Epaphroditus, uh, this uh, servant, as it were, of the Lord, who was chosen out to travel all the way with all the trials that that involved, this would take more than a year, probably, to travel all the way to to Rome to uh, seek Paul's wisdom and guidance in this matter, right? So, so that was the uh, the background of this. But because of the circumstances that had developed, uh, first of all, with uh, Epaphroditus himself, uh, he was near death because he had sort of spent himself entirely in the travel and then in serving uh, the apostle there in Rome. Uh, and because of this, he was near death. And somehow the, this had gotten back, uh, apparently, to the, those in Philippi. And uh, there had been 
some exchange of communications. I, I don't know how this happened. But uh, the end result is that Paul feels a great, great burden to uh, write a letter to them addressing these various issues. The women who are in conflict, uh, the uh, the circumstance with the Paphroditus, that he is now in recovery from his various trials, and uh, that's a great reason to rejoice. But then Paul's own circumstances, an incredibly great reason for rejoicing. Paul's in prison. He's a bond slave of Christ, uh, but nevertheless, he is rejoicing in how God has worked. So that's really the uh, the background of the letter. <clears throat> Paul's letters are organized in three sections, and you may not have ever seen this outline before because it's, it's really a structural outline. It's not a verse-by-verse outline. It's structural. And it's uh, an outline of the letters as a whole. Okay, so Romans, for example, as we all know, is a great letter of teaching, a great letter of doctrine, right? One of the greatest. It, it compares to Ephesians in that respect. So Romans and Ephesians are the two greatest Pauline teaching letters or, or, or uh, doctrinal letters, Romans and Ephesians. Uh, <clears throat> Then there are letters that uh, relate to those doctrinal or, or teaching letters because they address specific failures in the churches and failures in respect to that particular doctrine that have been taught. So the letters that correspond to Romans are First and Second Corinthians. Um, they address failure to apply, to live out the doctrine that Paul conveyed in his letter to the Romans, right? So that's Corinthians. So Romans and Corinthians are related in that way. Then Galatians relates to a failure in the doctrine itself. So uh, Romans teaches salvation by grace through faith alone and how one must not mix works with uh, with faith, right, uh, without uh, issues developing. Law and grace cannot be mixed. And the letter to the Galatians deals with the doctrinal failure. False teachers had come into that church and caused great problems. So so those three go together. Romans, then First and Second Corinthians, and then Galatians. Uh, same sort of thing with Ephesians. Philippians and Colossians. Ephesians teaches the high doctrine of our salvation and how we are seated in the heavenlies in Christ and how the dispensation of the grace of God is so heavenly oriented. (laughs) And um, the teaching is very powerful in Ephesians. Even our warfare, he says, is spiritual. You remember we looked at that a little bit recently. Okay, Philippians relates to a failure of the church in Philippi to apply, to live out the doctrinal teaching of Ephesians. So that's what we're going to be looking at here. Philippians is a correction or a correctional letter meant to correct the failures in 
application of, of that great doctrinal teaching of Ephesians. Ephesians was also a prison letter, as, as is Philippians. And then there's Colossians, which addresses a different kind of failure. The church in Colossae failed in the regard of the doctrine itself. They've been carried away by every wind of doctrine. They had been uh, influenced by false teachers in a very serious way. And so the doctrine taught in Ephesians is not being uh, held to. It's not being upheld uh, in the church at Colossae as it should be. And so Paul writes this letter to correct the doctrinal error that they've fallen prey to. So that's how Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, three prison letters, relate to one another, similarly to Romans, the Corinthian letters, and Galatians. Okay, now when we see this structure of, the, of all the Pauline letters as a whole, and I left out a few, there are a couple of other letters, uh, you know, the practical letters of Timothy and Titus and Philemon, uh, and the Thessalonian letters, uh, we see that Paul addresses specific subjects in these different letters that are very, very relevant to us as believers today. Uh, the Philippians letter, if we were just to say in one sentence what its overall theme is, the theme of the Philippians letter is that the Lord God is sovereign and glory awaits every <laughs> every believer. <laughs> okay. Um, but <laughs> the living of this life is a challenge, nevertheless, and we must focus in on what God has provided, and our minds must be set on things above indeed, or we'll be caught up in the things of this world for sure. And that's really the overall uh, theme of the letter to the Philippians. There are four examples set for us there in that letter. Four examples, and, and we'll see what they are shortly in a little bit of detail. But those four examples are, first of all, the greatest example of all of how we should be living under grace. That great example is Christ himself, okay? And you knew that would be the greatest, I'm sure. Christ's example is first and foremost. Secondly is Paul's example, the Apostle Paul. Uh, he, his life was a demonstration of Christ's sacrifice and his resurrection, right? So Paul is set forth as an example for us, as you well know. Uh, the third example given in this letter is that of Timothy, uh, Paul's right-hand servant, as it were, since just before his arrival in Philippi, uh, Timothy joined up with Paul and they ministered together from then on, often in the same locations, right? So when Paul came to Philippi and these believers to whom he writes here were saved, Timothy was with him. Timothy had a very special place in the heart of the Philippian believers, therefore, and so Paul and Timothy together are, are, are sharing, as it were, their love for the Philippians in this letter and in all the specifics found here. Uh, 
The fourth example is Epaphroditus himself. He was sent by the Philippians. He is a Philippian, uh, and he was sent to uh, Rome with uh, news concerning what was happening there in Philippi and the issues they faced, and also sent to be a blessing to Paul himself. So Epaphroditus truly did give himself for the work of the Lord, even nearly unto the point of death, as as I just said. Now, there are two negative examples. See, these four are very positive indeed. Uh, there are two negative examples given uh, two women whose names are mentioned. Uh, we'll get to them shortly. Um, now, why such an emphasis on examples? <clears throat> um, well, the overall message of the letter to the Philippians is that the examples are there. Uh, okay, Christ's, Paul's, Timothy's, and that of Epaphroditus. The examples stand there. They loom large. I mean, how can any believer today live without recognizing them? And uh, Paul is writing... Uh, of that fact that we must take to heart those examples, but not simply that we must. It's not a legalistic kind of thing that this is what God requires of it, of us. It's that there's great power in this. So really um, our lives are supposed to be oriented around the truths that are exemplified in the lives of those four and in the power demonstrated there. And that power is available to us today by grace. I mean, that's really the, the bottom line here. So nearly all of the letter is, is um, composed of these four examples. So nothing's more important here in this letter, really, than to see what those examples are and then to see their power uh, as we consider them properly. Um, our lives may be changed entirely through this, this process, this spiritual process. So let's get right into it. Um, as I said, there were two women mentioned. You know, you don't find them by name until chapter 4, of the letter. Now, I think that's important to realize. Paul is writing a letter about two women, but that's not the way he presents it at all, because if he did, of course, it would not have the proper consequence uh, and result, right? Paul mentions them sort of like in passing kind of but when he mentions them at the beginning of chapter 4, it's with words of great power. And I'll just read those words to you right now. This is in chapter 4 of Philippians, in the first few verses. He says, I beseech Iodias and beseech Syntyche. So the names are Iodias and Syntyche. By the way, Iodias, her name means the good way, the good path. <laughs> um, she certainly isn't walking in that direction, it seems. Uh, Syntyche, her 
her name just means kind of un, unsettled, kind of random. Um, and uh, so maybe that properly describes her life, unfortunately. But what he says is, I beseech these two, Eudiodius and Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord, that they be in the same mind in the Lord. Uh, and you might think, well, that's a pretty rather weak kind of exhortation, maybe. Uh, be of the same mind. I mean, how could that be so difficult, right? How could it be so important? I mean, what we see in the churches are conflicts <laughs> about everything, right? It's it's common. It's ordinary. It's not as if there's the perfect church, and then all of a sudden there are two people in the church that have a conflict, and somehow that that thing is going to be singled out as totally unusual and uh, unheard of before. No, it's just the opposite. But, but nevertheless... Paul does write the letter with these two people very much in the center focus. They're in the spotlight, okay? Though he does not mention them directly until chapter 4, there are uh, indirect references to them and their problem throughout the letter. And in fact, uh, this word used here, this word translated mind, mind in the King James, where it says that they be of the same mind in the Lord. That word is probably the most important word in the letter. It's used many times in this letter. That that word or its cognate words may be translated in other, word, in other ways, uh, perhaps with the word regard, for example, or think. Um, you know, or or affection, uh, Colossians chapter three verse two. Set your affection on things above, not on things of this earth. For you died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. It's the same word there as we see here in Paul's exhortation to Eodius and Syntyche. Okay, so thinking is in the spotlight here in this letter more than just about anything else, at least linguistically. It's it's the way Paul is addressing the subject. So, of course, he's going to talk about the Lord's mind as the greatest uh, example of all for us believers today. And please take that as, as a serious comment. I mean, if I were to give you the list right now of the places where this word mind is used... Uh, uh, I mean, I have the list in front of me. Look at the notes afterwards, after I post them on libertymessenger.org, and you'll see how absolutely critical this subject is. Uh, it's right in the center of Paul's mind as he writes the letter, and uh, in like 10 places. I don't have the exact number, but... Uh, it's found so often in every chapter here in Paul's letter to the Philippians. So if there was just one thing singled out, try to consider it as sort of a, a stone in the, uh, in, in the swamp. We're trying to get through the swamp like 
pilgrim, right? <laughs> from uh, Pilgrim's Progress, and you're going from stone to stone. One of the key stones you want to be able to get onto, because it's so foundational, is this this uh, subject of <clears throat> mind or thinking. <clears throat> of course, he's not considering that as uh, logical reasoning or or scientific. Uh, investigation or something like that. No, no. <clears throat> this is the mindset. This is how we as humans are enabled by God to live a life which is focused on uh, his glory and his grace. And uh, we, we have to, we have to, uh, to understand that the life of Christ is not a haphazard kind of thing, bouncing around from one thing to another without any rhyme or reason or real purpose. It's very rational, if you know what the word rational uh, really means, right? It, it's logical in a sense that uh, uh, the philosophers don't understand. So the logic of the letter to the Philippians is very much based upon using one's mind correctly. Okay, um, quickly, the letter itself has a structure, and um, I've just mentioned that there are four examples, and they're at the heart of the letter. There are also some other things found here. Uh, one other very strong emphasis in the letter is the heart and how the heart reaches out to others, right? And Paul's heart reached out to the Philippians. But this kind of heartfelt response is found uh, mentioned in a number of ways. Not only Paul's heartfelt response and love for the Philippians, also the love of Epaphroditus for Paul, right? That's a significant thing that's highlighted. Timothy's example is also given. Um, and, and even the Philippians their concern for Paul, they sent they sent Epaphroditus, as I said, one of the reasons they sent him was that they cared about Paul and what had happened to him there in prison in Rome. The greatest heartfelt concern, though, of course, is that of Christ himself for sinners. And that's uh, the highlight of the whole letter in the second chapter. Okay, um, now, another focus that's very significant is that of joy. It's impossible to rest in the grace of God and not have joy. And uh, that is a major theme uh, from the very beginning, from the first chapter, where Paul says, I have such joy <laughs> because of how the Lord God has worked here in Rome <laughs> since I arrived. Well, if Paul, who's a prisoner, a bond slave of Christ, is rejoicing, and he's rejoicing, and upon that even more rejoicing, so much that he's got to make it the first thing in his letter and then come back to it often throughout this letter, then it ought to be ours as well. Such joy communicates. <laughs> it communicates from one to another through testimony, right? Okay. So this is a letter of Paul's testimony and of his great joy. <clears throat> Okay, let's uh, move ahead then. Uh, the letter starts um, out with a standard salutation where Paul indicates who it is 
that the letter is from. We always write at the beginning of a letter from, maybe. <clears throat> it's the from and the to, right? From, he says, Paul. And by the way, Timothy says is with me. They should love to hear that, right? They love Timothy very much indeed there in Philippi. So Paul and Timothy um, to the believers in Philippi. And then he, he says what he does often in his letters. It's a, sort of a mark of Paul's letters. He says, grace and peace from God and our Lord Jesus Christ to you all. Grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul isn't actually giving them grace and peace. He's basically expressing the fact that uh, in this dispensation of grace, uh, grace is poured out abundantly towards us and peace uh, is there as well. Right? We have peace with God and God is, of course, the God of all peace, right? So that's how the letter begins. Now, it doesn't take long, though, after some preliminaries, um, where Paul uh, gives the background uh, uh, of how this all happens. It doesn't take long. Uh, and in giving the background, he, he expresses really his great heartfelt concern for the Philippians. And I'd like us there to, uh, to consider that um, as we read. Linda, please read in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, who made himself no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee, knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have also obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Okay, thank you, Linda. Well, <clears throat> this is uh, just the most amazing passage. The theologians have quite a time with it, uh, not not for such good reasons. I mean, the, they really get caught up in the theology of it in ways that are often negative and not helpful. But uh, what you've read, Linda, is the greatest statement in the entire Bible, on Christ offering himself up for sinners. <clears throat> um, it, and it speaks of the mind of Christ, right? What was his thinking as he uh, went into this? Well, of course, the background of it is, is his love for us, right? He loved the world. God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son. It was uh, his love that uh, drove him, really, 
into obedience to the will of God the Father, right? Now, this is mentioned even in chapter 1. There, though, what, what, uh, what Paul focuses on is his love for them, but of course the whole uh, focus is on Paul as being one who is an example of Christ himself. So Paul's love is only an example of Christ, otherwise it would not be important. Otherwise it would be merely human love. In fact, he even says in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all, in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Uh, That's something to uh, contemplate indeed. Uh, I recommend that you do that. Bowels just simply means, I mean, we use the word differently today, just meant the inward parts of, okay? So uh, in the essence of the person of the resurrected Christ, This is where Paul is dwelling, okay? (laughs) And because of it, in the next verse he says, uh, so he longs for them just like Christ does. But as a result, he says, I pray that your love, it may reflect ours, right? Christ's and mine, that your love may abound yet more and more. Okay, that you may approve the things that differ, or that's really uh, things that differ. Important uh, book written by Cornelius Stamm. The title of the book comes from this verse 10 of chapter 1 of Philippians. Translated, things that are excellent in the King James, things that differ would be kind of a literalist translation of it. Okay, and then he says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Okay, let's uh, quickly move ahead. Uh, We'd love to stop and consider that chapter more there, uh, that part of chapter 2. But, Patty, I'd like you to quickly read. See, what we're trying to get in our minds and hearts today is an overview of the letter and so we're focusing on what's most significant here. So, Patty, please read uh, chapter 2, uh, verses 19 through 21, and then skipping down to 25, and then 29 and 30. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. Verse 25. Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger that he ministered to my wants. In 29 and 30. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation. Because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. Okay, well, so there we see the second and third examples. So the first example for us is Christ in his sacrifice, right? 
leaving heaven in the first place, coming to this earth in the incarnation, and then his life was a life of sacrifice, his death was the greatest sacrifice of all, and now uh, in heaven's glory, waiting to call us up to be with himself, right? But, but he mentions Timothy's example here. He says, there aren't many like Timothy who care naturally for your state, and he says why it is that most do not. He says, all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. What a statement indeed, huh? Uh, well, would to God that we are on the right page here, right? <laughs> that we're not motivated the way the many were, but rather the way, of course, Christ himself was, and then Timothy uh, was, and he as Paul writes of it here, Timothy has this very, very special concern for the Philippians. Um, then there's Epaphroditus, and uh, it says here, uh, he ministered even not regarding his life, even unto death nearly, right? And uh, that is an incredible thing, Paul says. So he says, take note of these examples. They're so, so powerful, so important. Well, then going on to the next chapter, um, in chapter 3, the emphasis is on Paul's example. And Ted, I'd like you to read uh, some of those key verses there in uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinks that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Okay, thank you. Thank you. That's uh, Paul stating his fleshly, um, <laughs> what, um, privilege, you might say, his, his fleshly basis for confidence, none of which any longer meant anything to Paul. He had cast it all aside for the sake of Christ, hadn't he? And he says that in the next verses, what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. So Paul sets forth his example, first negatively by saying, that's what I was before, and then positively, this is who I am now, right? Notice the great sacrifice illustrated here. In this case, 
for the sake of the church. In the sake of Christ, it was for the sake of sinners. In the case of Paul, it's for the sake of the church and its well-being, right? But really, Paul's example is summarized in the most precious way of all, I think, uh, in those verses I've asked Roy to read, and that's right near the end of uh, the third chapter of Philippians. So, Roy, would you please read for us verses 17 through 21 of Philippians 3. Brethren, be followers of me, and mark them for which walk, so as ye have us for an example. Many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who man earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, and from whence also we look for the Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change a vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Okay, thank you, Roy. Well, what an example Paul's life was, a life of great sacrifice, a life surely with the quality of resurrection, right? Uh, and one that should be a reality for us today. Paul writes in chapter 4, summarizing the whole subject with words like this. He says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Is that true of you? Is it true of me? Of course it is. Have we taken these words to heart? I hope we do. We haven't already. And then in chapter 4, verse 19, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. <laughs> Some people talk about refrigerator verses. They're the ones you put on the refrigerator with the little magnet, right? So you see them all the time so that you're constantly reminded. How about putting this one up, right? Uh, perhaps you already have. <laughs> Maybe you have it framed on the wall. It would be a wonderful thing. My God shall supply all your need. You can write your name in there, right? All your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Well, that's where we are with the letter to the Philippians. It's a wonderful and powerful letter of encouragement for every believer uh, who takes it to heart. <laughs> the sad thing is that so few do, uh, and so many <laughs> miss out on the blessings. I pray that we wouldn't be like those that miss out, but rather those that grasp fully on to the preciousness of this teaching. And the power of it will be revealed in our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, before we go to the Lord in prayer, are there any comments? Lisa, I see you've joined us. You and Charlie? 
Good morning, everybody. Charlie and Daniel and I came on while Linda was sharing her testimony about Charlie. Oh. Um, so we, we have been here and enjoyed the teaching. Thank you. Oh, great. great. Yeah, I didn't notice. I don't notice who's coming in later because it's on a different screen in Skype than where I am. So, yeah, well, welcome. Uh, any questions by anyone? Or um, I have a question. In the last portion you just read, um, he doesn't pluralize the word needs. Need. He says need. Who will supply all your need? Yes. Which seems to indicate a specific need, not like multiple. Can you elaborate on that? Sure, sure. Um, <clears throat> you're right, and it's 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 important to to note that um, Paul writes a lot about our wants, <laughs> and uh, he says God will provide for every need. Uh, sort of singling it out as a singular sort of thing, because it's the Lord God who defines what our needs are. Uh, yeah, we they're plural, but in a certain sense, they're so singular. <laughs> this is how the Lord God is working in our lives. He meets our need. Of course, in English, the word has a general uh, implication as well, right? It, in other words, it it's focused on the whole thing the entirety of it. <laughs> but I, I, I think Paul's point here is that if, if we realize that the entirety of our circumstances are dependent upon him and his working all things out for our good, then life is simplicity itself. Otherwise, we're overwhelmed <clears throat> by all of these affairs that come upon us daily, right? So I would just say that and leave it at that, Ted. Thank you. Yeah. Any other comments or questions? <clears throat> I have a question, uh, Jim. Yes, Lisa. Um, in the in the last verse that was uh, the last section of verses that was just read in um, chapter three, verse nineteen, it says, "Whose end is destruction? Whose god is their belly? And whose glory is in their shame? Who mind earthly things?" Is that destruction? Um, a destruction for uh, those that are unsaved that they're going to be destroyed, or is that for the saved who are going to be destroyed at the judgment seat of Christ that their works will be destroyed? How can I tell the difference if Paul is talking about those that are unsaved and destroyed or those that are going to be destroyed at the ju at the judgment seat with their works? That's a very, a very good question. <clears throat> and... In a sense, it's a hard question, Yeah. Main, mainly because if all we had were these verses right here, we wouldn't know, right, whether he's referring to unbelievers or whether he's referring to believers who've gone astray in their doctrine, right, mm -hmm. practice. So the main emphasis is practice in the letter, but... Uh, these that are singled out here and earlier in the chapter, you know, called some dogs and so forth, right? Um, Paul is, I think, singling out false teachers here who are leading the believers astray. In fact, that may be the problem with Syntyche and and Euodius, uh, right? Okay. Been captured by false teachers, but but the practical side of their rebellion is division in the church 
And it's very destructive. It's, it's been so destructive in the Philippian church that uh, uh, the Paphroditus was sent forth to Rome. Imagine that. I mean, it takes over a year to get to Rome. Mm. Uh, you know, imagine how long to get to return, right, with the word from Paul, you know, that they had uh, really considered their issues to be overwhelming. It, it's quite clear, right? So I, th I think he's he's writing not about us if we should turn us astray for a while or something like that and live in the in the flesh. Uh, I think he's he's talking about those who are they're 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 bent indeed they're corrupt indeed their end truly is destruction. But but I. I Apparently, they had presented themselves quite otherwise. So, so really, what Paul is is saying here is that, uh, and he's in tears over this, right? Uh, he say, says, "Don't follow after them. Follow after me." This is one of the main exhortations. Where it says, "Follow me." Right in verse seventeen. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. you know, and that that makes sense about the false teachers because when I read this passage, or when uh, when uh, the passage was being read, it reminded me a little bit of the Pentecostal church that we have come out of. Um, as I was reading, because um, uh, the more that I've learned, I I just see the teaching that we came out of that they're enemies of the cross of Christ, that they never did preach the cross. They were constantly mm -hmm. preaching about earthly things. Mm -hmm. And it's funny that uh, whose God is their belly, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, and I see that as well. So um, yeah. I was always kind of confused about that. But when you mentioned the false teachers, those words kind of make sense to me now. Yeah. Now, of course, we we can put ourselves in there and we can say, well, sometimes we mind earthly things. Some sometimes, you know, you could apply every one of those phrases to believers who are not living up to. Uh, what grace would have for us, right? It's yeah. just that these are exemplifying that. They are they are the examples of that, right? And I I am of the opinion that they're unbelievers. These are good questions, indeed. Okay, let let's go to the Lord in prayer then. Father God, thank you for gathering us again today. Um, the word set before us is. Powerful, Father, I pray that it would instruct our hearts, not merely our minds, but our hearts. But may we have the mind or the the the, the thinking, the, the process of thinking, uh, the essence of thinking that was in Christ Jesus when he cast aside what he had at the right hand of the Father and took upon himself human flesh, all for the sake of sinners, right? Um, and that that as one who knows the end from the beginning, uh, he could do this uh, completely, right? Uh, giving up everything for our sakes. Father, I thank you so much that he did that and that we also may be lifted above our circumstances here uh, by having that same mind. So please enable us, Father, to have that mind that we might be a blessing for others and a light in the darkness, uh, holding forth the word of truth and love. So, Father, we would thank you in Christ's name. Amen.